Could it be that up in heaven God is sitting on his throne Anticipating another sinner Will soon become his own Years of wasted living And years of toil and strife Are just about to be over As he receives the gift of life Go sound the horn Strike up the choir A sinner is saved Saved from the fire No more in darkness He received my son All heavens rejoicing That's the value of all Spirit has been working to soften up a heart. All he needs is a willing servant to simply do his part. Can you imagine up in heaven the joy there'll be that day as a sinner bows his head to pray? Can't you hear the Father say? Take our Bibles, turn over to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2. <clears throat> A doctor said to his patient, he said, I have bad news and I've got worse news. Oh my, what's the bad news? You have only 24 hours to live. That's terrible. How can the news that you have left be any worse? Or, I mean, how is that possible? 
Well, I've been trying to contact you since yesterday. <laughs> that wouldn't be good, would it? It wouldn't be good either way. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. I'm sorry, I'm just looking at my notes and I realized that my latest rendition didn't get copied over. So you get to hear this all by memory. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> That's, there's no worse news. But anyway, yeah. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Let's begin reading there. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noise that he was in the house. Straightway, many were gathered together, insomuch as that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in the, his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up his be the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Four men, four men, as we read through the Scriptures, bring their desperately ill friend to Jesus Christ. Unable to force their way through the crowds, they, of course, carry the man up to the roof, either by climbing on outside stairway or somehow stepping from one flat roof to another. They move through the neighborhood on what the rabbis called the road of roofs. Arriving at their destination, these men wasted no time. They began to uncover that roof and they made an opening there and they, they, they placed themselves where Jesus was and they lowered that man right in front of the Lord Jesus Christ or so we believe. He was lowered either way, but I have to believe he was pretty close to Jesus. You can only imagine the commotion. I mean, can you, you imagine? Here's Jesus speaking. He's giving the word of God out. He's proclaiming the truth. And all of a sudden there, this roof begins to clatter and clank. And they hear footsteps. And pretty soon, the, there's a, literally a gaping hole in the ceiling. And they begin to tear it off piece by piece. Until finally, a body begins to be lowered. 
that's, that's an amazing commotion. I mean, everybody at this point now is focused up. They're not listening to anything Jesus would be saying. And I got to believe at that point, Jesus probably had stopped communicating and now was watching himself as to what was transpiring and taking place. What would the owner of the building say? I mean, what would Jesus do? And then, of course, there were the scribes, the doctors of the law, and they were convinced that Jesus had misguided the people, that he had captured their hearts and their minds, that these religious leaders likely came to observe Jesus in order to criticize and condemn both him and his ministry. I mean, they were certain that he was a fraud, and they were determined to expose him as one. Here's the only problem. Jesus heals the palsy man right before their very eyes and leaves them extremely perplexed and frustrated. I mean, they come, they, they come to the conclusion, ultimately, that they've got to do away with this rebel. He's got to go. He's not good for business. And they ultimately would condemn him to death and march him to Calvary where he would suffer and die. You know, we most often focus our attention as we read through the passage on those four men. And, and again, there's a number of wonderful messages that we can glean and gather from the passage and many applications that can be made. And I think that's important. I think about missions and I consider how it affects us and how each and every one of us has a part in bringing others to Jesus Christ. And boy, those are all great messages. This morning, however, I want to ask a simple question. Hey, why did they feel so compelled to take their friend to Jesus that day? I mean, why were they willing to bear the weight, spend the time, put forth the effort, avail themselves to public scrutiny? Possibly a lawsuit, I don't know. Can I, here's the answer. From what I can tell, here's the answer. Because only Jesus would do. Only Jesus would do. And this morning I want to give you three reasons why that's the case. Three reasons why only Jesus would do. And I got to believe that those same reasons apply today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for the time that we now have together. And Lord, we pray, dear God, that you would be magnified and exalted and glorified in this place and again, Lord, we know, Father, that without you we can do nothing. You're the vine, we're the branches. And Father, we, anything that we have or possess or are able to accomplish is a direct result of you in our life. And we thank you for just enabling us. Lord, today we turn our hearts and our attention to you again. Lord, may you be magnified and glorified. Father, you are worthy of our praise. And today I ask that you would just fill me with your Holy Spirit and may I proclaim the truth as you would have it proclaimed. May I truly be led by your Holy Ghost. And Lord, may every listening ear be anointed as well, that they would hear with spiritual ears. And Father, may the lost be saved and may the saved be moved to be better for you. Oh God, only you really do in our lives. You're the only one. 
And Lord, help us to realize that as we leave even today. We'll thank you, we'll praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Only Jesus would do. And here's three reasons why. I mean, again, they made their way there and they uncovered the roof. They carried him up to the top. Down he comes. All of that for what reason? Well, because only Jesus would do. Number one, because he's God. Because he's God. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, we've already read it, but the Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting here and reasoning in their hearts, why doth this man thus speak blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? God only. Who can do that but God? God's the only one, right? Isn't he the only one, they're saying? Jesus knew their hearts. He also knew that they sought occasion against him. Who can forgive sins but God only? Their question of which they knew the answer, mind you, was valid. It was a good question. But they already knew the answer. Instead of arguing with them, however, Jesus doesn't argue about his identity. He simply says, "Uh, listen, um, let me prove something to you. Let me prove that I can forgive sin because in forgiving sin, I'm going to prove to you, like you well know, that I am Emmanuel, God with you. And so in chapter 2, verses 10, the Bible goes on to say, but that ye may know... That the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. I mean, Jesus says, Listen, okay, you know the answer to your question. Nobody but God can forgive sin. You already know this. But I'm not going to argue about my identity. I'm not going to just sit here and back and forth with you about who I am and what I'm all about. No, I'm just going to do something that's going to prove to you I have the ability, the power, the authority to forgive sin, which ultimately makes me who you know I am, God. By the way, this wouldn't be the only time that Jesus hinted at or even pointed out his true nature. Take, for example, the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 30. The Bible says, I and my Father are one. Jesus Christ is speaking there. Now, again, we need only to look at the Jews' reaction to that particular statement to know that he was claiming to be God. You know what they did the moment he said that I and my Father are one? They picked up some stones and they were going to kill him. In John chapter 10, verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Oh, they understood exactly what Jesus... People say, Jesus never said he was God. Oh, really? They believed he did. Oh, he never come out and said, I am God. But he did say, I am. We'll get to that one in a minute. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ wasn't just a mere man that walked the face of the earth. He was the God-man. He was Emmanuel, God with us. 
The Jews understood exactly what Jesus was claiming that day. He was claiming deity. I am the and the Father are one. He was saying that he and the Father are of one nature and one essence. Not only that, but we read, turn over, if you would, to John chapter 8, verse 58. Turn to 56 to start with. We'll look at that. John chapter 8, verse 56. We're going to read through verse 59. Once again, Jesus is going to declare something extremely important. He's going to declare again his deity. Notice what he says in John chapter 8, verse 56. Do you know that Christianity is not built on a belief on God? It's a belief on Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, you cannot be saved, friend. You say, well, I believe in God, I just don't believe Jesus was God. My friend, you're not, you don't even know what biblical salvation is then. Now again, I know you say you're splitting hairs. I'm not splitting hairs. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, the Bible says. That means to agree with God that he is who he claimed to be. That he is Jesus Christ, God in flesh. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day. He died on the cross for us. Buried and rose again. He was more than a man. He was God. You must believe in Jesus Christ to be forgiven and saved. Because Jesus is God, though. You say, well, I believe in God, not Jesus Christ. You can't, that's not the God of the Bible, then. John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, Abraham was a big character in the Jewish faith, of course. He was huge. He's big in our day. We go back even to the book of Romans that talks about Abraham. Go back to the book of Hebrews talks about Abraham. We see Abraham listed even in the New Testament pointing us back to that day and how he was received because of his belief and faith. Notice what it says here. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. It sounds like he's got a class of third graders. Think about that. You're 26 years old, and I'm not saying he was. I'm just saying you're a 26-year-old. You're teaching third grade. How old do you think I am? Uh, 50? <laughs> you, you, you know, you, you ever been there? I mean, this with it. I mean, are you kidding me? Jesus isn't even. He's 30 years old, 32 years old, maybe. Uh, well, you're not even 50 yet. Why didn't you say 35? Do I look that old? Jesus looking in a mirror. I look that bad? I mean, I am God in flesh. I mean, I should be looking better than that. <laughs> it just catches me funny. But anyway, then said the Jews unto him, Thou art yet not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, here it is now, I Yes, he didn't say I was. I am. Then, <laughs> here we go again. These guys are always wanting to have a, you know, a rock party. And, and they then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. 
Why'd they pick up those stones? Why'd they seek to throw stones at him? Because they wanted to kill him again. Why? Because of blasphemy. Can I tell you why? Because once again, he was claiming to be God. They knew that's exactly what he was claiming to be. Again, this is a reference that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God revealed himself as the I am. Remember, who, who should I tell them sent me, Moses says. Tell them, I am sent you. I am sent you. I am sent you. And then here's Jesus now. What audacity, what arrogance, what pride to sit and to say before Abraham was, I am That's why they took up stones to cast at him. They knew for sure that's exactly what he was claiming, to be God. Therefore, they were going to kill him for blasphemy, just like the Mosaic law commanded in Leviticus 24, 16. They were just going to follow the law because they believed he was being blasphemous. There's no way he could be God. We've chosen. We've decided already. We haven't taken the time to look at the Old Testament prophecies. We haven't really focused on what the Word of God says. But in our own minds and in our own thinking, there's no way he could be God. Therefore, we're going to kill him for saying that. Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? They sure seemed like he did. They, they thought he did. And it seems by the Bible's definition, he was definitely making that claim. Then there's the testimony of John, the beloved disciple. Over there in the book of 1 John, turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. Why in the world are you fellas working so hard to get your friend to Jesus? Why are you climbing up onto the rooftops? Why are you walking across all those roofs, carrying that body? It, I don't know how much that guy weighed. He probably didn't weigh a whole lot. He'd probably been pretty sick for a long time. But either way, I don't know about you, but picking up dead weight like that isn't easy. And those four guys made their way there. And then when they got there, they realized they couldn't get inside. They finally got up to the top and they dug away that roof and they lowered the body down before the Lord Jesus Christ. Why'd you do that? I'll tell you why. Because only Jesus would do. Because only Jesus is God. 1 John 5, 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven. 1 John 5, 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 1, word, the Word is defined as who? Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. Jesus Christ is the Word. So you have the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Guess what? These three are what? That's called Trinity. I mean, again, you say, I don't get it, I don't understand it. You know what? I don't understand it all either. Do I believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yeah. Do you believe it? Most of you say, yeah, absolutely. Well, then you have to believe there's a Trinity. You have to believe that these three are one then. That's what the Bible says. Oh, I know there are groups in our country, there are religious groups that take words out of the Bible and they go ahead and manipulate it so that it says what they believe. I get that. But this is what the Bible says. You want to change the Bible? Go ahead. But according to Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, it says if you do that, you bring damnation upon yourself. My friend, I don't think it's a good idea to take away from the Word or to add to the Word. You better just believe what it says. For there's three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. See, only Jesus would do. That's why. That's why they took him to Jesus, because he would only, he's the only one that would do. 
because he's God. Number two, not only is he God, but because he's able. He's able. Again, in Mark chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, we've read it a couple of times. But it says there in verses 11 and 12, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all. I mean, immediately. Do you know there wasn't another person alive who could have done what Jesus did that day? There wasn't one person, not one. Well, why didn't they just go out and get a healer? Because he is the healer. That's the thing. They knew he was the only one. Listen, there's no man in this world today that can heal. Only God can heal. And Jesus is God. There's nobody like Jesus. We sing that chorus. We just sang it today. How appropriate. I didn't even know we were going to sing it. He's able. He's able. I know he's able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. And why do we know that? We said, he healed the brokenhearted and he set the captive free. He made the lame to walk again and he caused the blind to see. Let me tell you something. He's able. Man, it's been a long time, friend. You've been down on your back a long time. We hear that there's a Jesus around. Oh, I'll tell you what. We got to get to him. We got to get you to Jesus. See, Jesus' reputation had obviously preceded him. Do you know that they were in the same place that he began his ministry? They had heard his powerful message. They had witnessed or heard how he cast out the unclean spirit out of the man that was in the synagogue. They had heard about Simon's mother-in-law being miraculously healed and rising up to serve. They had witnessed the multitude being healed by the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had heard about the leper who begged by the wayside and sought the mercy of God and was cleansed by the master. Oh, my friend, let me tell you something. They knew that Jesus was the only one that could do this. Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Remember, Jesus is already God, and he is able. And those men took their friend that day, and they got tired of watching him lay there and not be able to accomplish anything or do anything or provide for his family. And they said, We want to get you healed, and we got a feeling we know where to go. We're going to take you to that Jesus guy. He's the only one that's going to do. And they grabbed him up, and they took him over there. And when they saw they couldn't get him in, they went on up top that roof, and they began to uncover cover that roof and they lowered him down before Jesus. Why? Because they knew he was God. They knew he was able. That's why. And number three, because he was willing. Because he was willing. I know a lot of people that are able not everybody's willing. Oh, not to do this, of course, but a number of things. Jesus is not only able, he is willing. I mean, he was busy that day, right? I mean, Jesus had, his schedule was full. 
I mean, he was pressed on every side. He's up there proclaiming the word of God. He's doing the work of the Father in heaven, and he is up there proclaiming truth, and he's letting her fly. <laughs> All of a sudden, he's like, what's that rattling on the roof? Could somebody quiet the rats running across the roof? Could somebody quiet those children that just seem to be messing around outside? Could you get those bus kids back in the bus? Could you get those church kids back inside? I'm tired of them running around out there. We're trying to preach. <laughs> that was an amen. <laughs> but you know what? It's interesting, isn't it? He didn't get upset with the disturbance or the interruption, did he? It doesn't appear. We don't see. There's nothing in Scripture that says or implies that he was upset with what was going on. It just seems almost like he sees, oh, wow. Look at that. The roof's coming down. And he just kind of stops for a minute. He's just like. And everybody else goes. And down comes a body. And he's just like, wow. Look at those men's faith. Can you believe how much faith it took for them to do what they just did? That's what the passage says. He marveled at their faith. He couldn't believe how much faith they had to disrupt even that service. I mean, honestly, somebody could have got pretty upset. Some of those leaders in that area could have said, man, you don't interrupt our services. You don't do those things. Instead, they said, man, we've got to get him to Jesus. We have to do that because only Jesus will do He was willing to be interrupted. He was willing to take time to minister under the palsy man. He was willing to heal him and restore him whole. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Turn there, would you? A very, very important passage in Scripture. One that completely and totally blows up Calvinism. Annihilates it. Disintegrates it. Calvinism being that God chose certain ones to go to heaven and other ones to go to hell. So Calvinism basically teaches at its most fundamental root but notice 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish. Now, how could he damn some to hell if he's not willing that any should perish? It's contradictory. It doesn't happen. It's impossible. Hey, listen, you may not fully understand election. You may not understand what all that mess is all about. But my friend, I can guarantee you what it's not. It's not Jesus choosing you over somebody else. You heaven, them hell. That's what it's not. And I can tell you, if you go to the book of Ephesians, you get a better feel of it and understand it in chapter 1. He begins to outline it and share with us what was really his plan and purpose all along. But nonetheless, we don't have time to go into that right now. But I can tell you this, he was willing. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, turn there, would you? I mean, I'm just so glad that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is willing. He's willing. Here's this man that's got palsy. 
And I'm sure that there are some, just like the good Samaritan, that I can't remember when we talked about him, maybe it was last week or whatever. And all I know is that when they walked by him, they went on the other side of the street, wanted nothing to do with the old good Samaritan. Let me tell you something, this man would have been similar. They'd have seen him in his need and they'd have thought, man, that's the last thing I want to do is pull another five out of my wallet. That's the last thing I want to do, have to offer a little bit of help. That's the last thing I want to do is be inconvenienced and try to carry him somewhere or go pick up some food and bring it out to him. I don't want to have to do all that mess. But Jesus was willing. He was willing to do what was needed. And those men knew that. Notice what it says here in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. That man was totally and completely helpless. He could do nothing on his own. He had to have four friends carry him to Jesus Christ. He couldn't have got there if he wanted to. But Jesus was willing to do something about it. In Isaiah 64, 6, the Bible says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are our filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You know what he's saying in that passage in Isaiah? He's saying this. He's saying the very best we have to offer God, who is holy, perfect, and righteous, are filthy rags. Our best deeds, the best we've got to offer God, is nothing but a dirty, filthy rag. It's nasty. It's disgusting getting out there. We talk about working on your car and you're changing your oil and all of a sudden that old nasty oil comes out the bottom and it gets all over your arm. You take that rag, you wipe off your arm to clean it off so it doesn't lay there. And next thing you know, you look at that rag and it is soiled with nasty, disgusting, wretched oil. And can I tell you, that's the best that you and I have to offer. You say, but I'm a good person. You are about a filthy rag before the holiness and righteousness of God. But I've grew up in a good home. I don't care. When God sees you, he still sees you as a sinner at the very root and the very heart of your being. The fact is that we're all sinners today. And the very best we have to offer God is nothing more than a filthy rag. You say, I don't like that. That's not very nice. That's the Bible. And let me tell you, until you get to the nitty-gritty and understand what your need is, you can't get what you really need. And I'm telling you, we've got a group of people in our world today that want to run around pretending to be so good, high and mighty and righteous, when in reality, we all start off the same. I don't care what your color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what, where you come from and where part of the world you're at. We're all still just human beings, and we are born into sin. We will live in sin and die in sin without Jesus Christ. We're just like the palsy man. We are all flawed and in need of Jesus. Only Jesus would do. Because he is God, because he's able, and he was willing. See, the Bible tells us that he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And judgment's already been passed. But hey, listen, no matter how sinful or despicable you may be, Jesus is bigger than your sin. He's bigger than my sin. He's willing to save us. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the Bible says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
What it's saying basically is this. That law that we read about, those Ten Commandments and all that mess over there, it all points to the fact that we're sinners. Every time we try to live up to its expectation, every time we try to rise to its standard, we fail miserably. That's what it says. But hold on. He says, that's okay, because over here is a cross, and Jesus hung on it, shed his precious perfect blood, was buried and rose again, and he is extending his offer of grace to you and I today. And I don't care how big that sin looks in your eyes or in the eyes of others in this life. I'm telling you, he says, that grace is so much bigger than that sin could ever be. My friend, you just need to trust Jesus. You only need to accept him today. You need to trust in his grace and mercy, and he'll wash away your sin. He's willing. Turn if you would to Isaiah chapter 55. We're getting close. Isaiah 55, I want you to see this because this is great. What an unbelievable truth in the Word of God. Again, we know that in the book of Isaiah, we're dealing with the children of Israel. We know this. We know that in the, 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 the context of it all, it's dealing with a nation. I understand that. But we're going to see an application that applies to you and I today as well. Look at Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7. He's speaking, and, 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 and the prophet says, according from the word of the Lord, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Notice, return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy. He will not give you what you deserve. He won't give you what you deserve. He won't give me what I deserve. And return to, the, to, to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, he says. Notice verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now hold on. We often take those two, those passages right there, eight and nine, and we pull them out and we say things like, see, see, your thoughts aren't like God's. And that is true. That's true. Your ways aren't like God's. God's ways are different than ours. Yeah, that's true. But we use it to explain things we don't understand necessarily, but God, in context, in the passage, the context of the passage, he's telling us exactly what his point is. You say, what's that? Well, the sin and wickedness of Israel is clearly outlined in the book of Isaiah. It's outlined even in all the prophets. All you need to do is read them. Their rebellion had brought on the chastising hand of God over and over and over again. He had punished them with the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Time after time, God had restored Israel only to be betrayed all over again. Still, we read that God is willing not only to pardon, but to abundantly pardon. You get, you, you get in the drift here. I mean, they're not doing anything to deserve this grace and this mercy. No, not at all. And yet they keep stabbing God in the back, stabbing God in the back. Oh, oh, we're sorry, God. And then he starts to go, okay, good. And they turn their back on God again, start walking away. And, and God's like, what's going on? And we, hold on. 
How is this possible? Not only to pardon, but to abundantly pardon. How's that possible? Why wouldn't God wash them off the face of the earth, just wreck them and ruin them and be done with them forever and ever and ever and ever? And we know, according to Romans chapter 11, that God's not done yet with Israel, that God's still got a chapter that he's still going to fulfill and that they ultimately will rule and reign with Jesus Christ during the millennium. We know this according to the Bible. So God's not finished with them yet. And as we read this passage, and he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And what he's saying is this, you would never be as forgiving and as merciful as me. Your ways aren't my ways and your thoughts aren't my thoughts. Only I can do that because I am God. That's so awesome, isn't it? We mess with God so bad we forget God and we leave him in the dust over and over again and God's going, you know what? I'm going to have to chasten you. I'm going to have to bring you back somehow because that's in your best interest. But I don't want to have to do it. But I will. Because I'm not just going to throw you away like you would throw others away. Because I'm God. My thoughts aren't yours. My ways aren't like yours. I'm me, and I'm only one of one. I'm me. I do things differently. His way defy human logic. We'd never put up with that rebellion, disobedience, and betrayal. But thankfully, he does and is willing. Hey, listen. Jesus Christ is willing to pardon you, too. Abundantly pardon even though you don't deserve it, even though I don't deserve it, he is willing. See, that day, they'd heard about Jesus already. His reputation had preceded him. And, and you've got to believe that they're thinking to themselves, man, only Jesus will do. No physician can do what he can do. No, no, no doctor of the law can do what he does. Jesus is Jesus. He's one of a kind. Only Jesus will do. And they say, friend, I don't know if you're dressed for the occasion or not, but what I do know is that you've got to get to Jesus. And they grabbed him up and they started carrying him toward that meeting place. And when they get there, they realize I can't get in. It's too packed. It's too crowded. There's no way we're going to get him in there, but he's got to see Jesus. He's got to see Jesus. He's got to see Jesus. And they take him on up top that roof, begin to un just take that roof off the top and next thing you know the light begins to crack through and Jesus stops talking and the people start looking and pretty soon some of them are covering their eyes now because the stuff's dripping oh goodness I just got something in my eyeball and they're like oh I can't stand this what's going on up there and next thing you know it's a body coming down and Jesus he heals him he does what no one else could ever do for that man can I tell you, he'll do for you what no one else can ever do. You may not be sick of the palsy, but you're sick of sin. It reigns in your body and in your life. But today, Jesus Christ will heal you. He'll wash you clean. He'll make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. He'll give you an eternal hope. 
you can try to build your life on relationships other than him. I mean, you can look to your job or your career or your lifestyle or your system of belief, but when it's all said and done, only Jesus will do. See, he created you. And he created you with a void on the inside. Whether or not you understand this or not, you will never be complete and whole without Jesus Christ taking up residency in your life. And the only way that happens is when you put your faith and trust in him and he takes up residency and moves in. Only Jesus will do. Man, I love Oreos. Switch the subject a little bit here. I came home the other day and I noticed these, a bunch of stuff on the kitchen table. Like kind of treats and stuff, you know? And I'm like, yes. My wife, man, she's awesome. I see this big thing of family size or super size Oreos. Man, I love Oreos. I, I crack it open. I thought twice, of course. So, and I thought it's worth it. Cracked it open, took a couple out, sealed it up real nice so it didn't look like they'd been opened. I started, I was a little disappointed, I'm going to be honest with you. They're so, I didn't have this double stuff. The regular, and there's so little bit, I mean, it's like, it's micro. But man, they were still good. I went back, cracked it open again, took a couple more. And I thought, those got to be for me, right? I'm the greatest husband in the world. My wife comes home, she starts looking over stuff, and she must have looked inside there, because she must have seen something wasn't quite right. She says, those Oreos weren't for you, Mark. They're for the ladies on Monday night. I'm like, what? Can I tell you, in my opinion, there is no substitute for Oreos. I, I, I know. Go to Aldi's and get the chocolate ones with the white stuff in it and all that junk. I know there's all these different, you know, I don't know, you know, just versions of Oreos. Generics, you know. Nah. Nah, there's no substitute. Only Oreos will do for me, thank you. Hey, these four men carried their comrade to Jesus. Why'd they do that? Because only Jesus would do. Boy, in your life today, I want you to know only Jesus is going to do. In your marriage, only Jesus will do. In your family, only Jesus will do. All other options are trying to copy the genuine article. But know this, and never forget it. Only Jesus will do. Have you put your personal faith and trust in him today? You say, well, not yet. Well, what are you waiting for? The truth is, as we mentioned already and as we noted from Scripture, that we are already condemned because the law points us out to be sinners. We've already transgressed against God and his law to the point where he says, I must punish because I'm righteous and just and holy. I've got to do that. I don't want to. I am willing to save but you have to be willing to come. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Have you called on him? Have you invited him into your life? Have you trusted him as your savior? That's all the same thing, by the way. If you haven't, you need to today. Inside, maybe there's a tugging at your heart and something saying you need to get that settled. You need to know that Christ is your savior. You need to know that heaven's your home. And inside you're going, man, I don't, I, I'm concerned about that now. I realize that I need something because I don't want to spend eternity separated from God. I want to spend eternity with God. And inside, you know, there's something going on right now. That's the Holy Spirit trying to just convict you, prove to you, and prompt you to trust his son, to trust Jesus as your savior. Won't you do that today? Just obey the Holy Spirit. Just obey. Yield your will to his will. He's not willing that any should perish, and I know you don't want to. Trust and receive him today. And if you're a child of God today, can I tell you that only Jesus will do in your life too? Father, we come to you. We ask, dear God, that you'd work in our lives. We thank you, Father, for just the privilege that we have to be a part of your family. And Lord, there may be those in our midst that have yet to trust and receive you as Savior and Lord, then they might be successful in this life. They may be able to look at things in the life and say, well, th those things are satisfying me now. They're meeting a need in my life. But Lord, in the end, only you will do. Only Jesus will do. I pray, Lord, that you'd convict them of their sin and show them a great need, their great need of salvation to this morning. And for the believer today, Lord, I'm glad that we have access to so much information today and we can find help in so many different avenues. But in the end, Lord, it's you that we need, whether it's our marriage or our life, our family or our children, whether it's our ministry, whatever it might be, it's we need you. Only you will do. There's no generic version that'll get the job done. Only you will do. There's no substitute. Only you will do. Help us, Lord, this morning, we pray. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't